to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So, let's live our best lives, one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We're so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing great. Me too. Yesterday, we closed on our house. Oh, yay. It's done. Yeah, it's done. It took three weeks. That was the pretty fast closing. So the new people are here, and they're excited. Our realtor at the closing said that they loved it. They loved the house. They hadn't seen it. They bought it sight unseen. Oh, really? Yes. But they're familiar with the neighborhood because they used to live there, and their house was a similar design as mine. But, you know, you still are like, Now, is it just a vacation home for them? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're here with their grandkids, and they had just sold one in December in the neighborhood, and then they regretted it, and now they're back, and... So I'm glad they loved it. That was the most important thing. When y'all have closings in Alabama for houses, do you go to the closing table and do you meet, are the buyers and the sellers at the same closing table? When you bought your house? No, but my sellers were relocated and a relocation company sold this house. They were in Ohio. There was not a representative from the relocation company there. See, in South Carolina, I, we didn't realize this, but it's it's customary to not be at the closing table at the same time. But in Georgia, you are. Like, when you have a closing, buyer and seller are all there in the room. And so I've finally realized. So when I bought my house in Kansas, I never met the seller. See, I love to meet the buyer. I was so excited I was going to meet them. No, didn't get to meet them. And, the you know, the funny thing, too, about my house in Kansas is... I did a lease purchase on it, and I never, ever met the owners of the house. Like, I leased it for two years, and then they gave me money for, like, a down payment back. And never, ever met the sellers. So, no, that must be a Georgia thing. It has to be. But when we closed on this condo, we went to the closing, and I had met the owner when we were looking at it. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to see her again. Well, no, they had closed at a whole different place. And they're like, yeah, that's what we do around here. I'm like, what? Anyway, it's a big relief to have all that done. We're finished. We're done moving. I'm not moving anything. So now you just have your tiny little beef cottage that you live in. Tiny Beach call it. My 900 square foot house. It's <laughs> tiny. And then the little. And then your little condo. Yeah, but it's absolutely perfect. It's, you know, who knew how we would be living here, but it worked out great. And my sister and her husband came to visit this past weekend. I'm like, all right, do you want to stay at the little tiny house with us? Or do you want to stay in the condo by yourself? And she said, we'll pick the condo. <laughs> so they stayed here and it was nice. You know, had a little separation. They could get away. And well, I can't wait to see it when I come out there in July. Yay. I can't wait to see you. I know. It's going to be a great time. Well, today we have a good news segment with a beautiful story from Teresa in Atascacita, Texas. Teresa wrote, I'm an Air Force brat, meaning I grew up in a military setting because my father was in the Air Force. When I was nine years old, we were stationed in the Philippines for two years. I met Kathy there as she was my neighbor. We were the best of friends. 
When she went back to Illinois, we promised to never lose touch. Later, when I went back to the States, my family was stationed in Georgia. Over the years, we wrote and we stayed in touch, and we had seen each other maybe two times since 1968. Well, she had a conference in Austin last month, and she called to see if it would be possible for us to meet. Then the conference was canceled, but she went ahead and she flew into Houston, and so we got a weekend to catch up while we tried to figure out why we waited so long. When we hugged, it was like coming home. She is so special to me. She explained our absence in such a fun way. She said, life has been like going down a river without a kayak. Every once in a while, I grab a rock, catch a breath, and then I let go. And another 10 years goes by before I'm able to grab another rock. We don't know why we never did FaceTime or texted each other. It was almost like we were stuck in the technology of our past or something. Anyway, she is like a sister to me, and we plan to see each other more often now for sure, especially because it is hard to make new friends at our age of 65. She truly is my oldest friend. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are joined by Alexandra Wyman, a woman who was unexpectedly thrust into a very painful life lesson that she was forced to navigate without the help of any kind of handbook or instruction manual when her husband made the decision to end his own life. This led her to write a book about her experience as a way to heal and as a way to reach others. Alexandra joins us today to share her story, her grief and healing journey, and what she is doing today to help others going through the same situation. So welcome, Alexandra. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm just so excited to be here today. Well, before we get into your story and your message, what is the main lesson you hope to share with our listeners today? I think the main lesson that I would have is almost it's okay to reflect on your hurts and to heal them. I know that sounds so basic, but I think it's so important to be able as we grow in our lives and have our life experiences and be able to connect with others is to be able to reflect upon our own decisions and be able to heal those as well as how other people's decisions have impacted us. Well, I think that's really important because so often we are trained to think the way to, to manage hurts is to shove them down. Right. Suck it up. Be strong. Don't show Get that you're it. struggling. So being able to reflect on them, identify them, and heal them is really the goal rather than shoving them down. So tell us some background of your story. So my family has been based here in Colorado for quite a while. I kind of traveled, moved around quite a bit, and then met my late husband, Sean, at the end of 2017. And we just had this whirlwind romance, just felt very connected. We're just grateful that we met each other. And we got married, got our house together, and then we ended up having our son. And then just before our second wedding anniversary, Sean did end up taking his own life. There were no signs. There was no predictability to it. I had no inkling that this was going to happen. I did know that he had a pretty traumatic childhood, that there were things he was trying to work through. There were added stressors. This was right in the middle of the, I'd say in the middle of the beginning of COVID, <laughs> where we are now with all of that. And we were having discussions just about how we could move forward and support each other at that time. And then he did end his life. And that was, I mean, if there's something to rock your world in your life, that was it for me. You know, instantaneously you became a widow and a single mom and had to navigate so much 
of the aftermath of that, we, we do have a lot of resources for prevention. And I'm finding that we could do better at having more resources for the aftermath. And so that's kind of what led me to start jotting down notes of what was working for me. What could I help others and support others? Because as much as I wish this type of death would would end. It hasn't. And so what else can we do to support each other and build each other up during these times? You know, the hardest part has got to be you probably going back over and over and over and where were the signs and how did I miss them? And I I would imagine for the survivor, that would be such a hard part of the process, feeling like you missed something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every scenario, what could I have done differently? And, And I'll say, you know, in examining death in general, there's something about this type of death where I feel like, at least in my situation, my life, my marriage, everything was just almost open season. It was open for judgment, open for people to ask those questions as well. And I was just struck by that going, I don't have all the answers. And also, why is it automatically that my life gets to be picked apart in order to try and make sense of something that is irrational and you can't make sense of it? Well, I think that's exactly it is that people want to make sense of a death. And, you know, when you can say, oh, they died from cancer or, you know, they died from old age or or what have it. But like people, well, first of all, I think for so many years, suicide was just not talked about. It was, you know, people didn't even admit to their friends when a family member committed suicide. There's almost this kind of cloak of shame around suicide. And I do feel like over the last 20 years, we are better about talking about it from a mental health aspect and doing more education and awareness about suicide. But, you know, I think because the survivors, whether it be a friend or family member or neighbor, they don't, because they don't understand, they're looking for that, like, what was the turning point or what was the, you know, jumping off point? Probably because... They want to know if something happens in their life, right? So they're coming to you like, well, there had to be something so that they can be armored with that knowledge later in their life. But so often the survivor is left and they don't, they don't have that information. Absolutely. And I say suicide doesn't discriminate. And we like to create space, not only to, I think for people who have that curiosity to be informed, but also to create some space of, oh, that's why it happened to them. Or that, you know, I don't, no one in my life is depressed like that. So it won't happen to me kind of thing. And instead of being unifying, that's kind of divisive, but you're right, that curiosity and to make sense of something, we start peeling apart those pieces. And, you know, I think for me, they're in my personal situation, you know, there are several times I said, I'm already trying to figure out what blame I have in this. I'm already trying to figure out what part I played. I'm already going through those scenarios, as you mentioned, Jen, of like, what could I have done differently? Could I have been a different wife? How did I contribute? And then to have other people do it, I'm like, I don't need you to to come in and ask those same questions. I'm already berating myself enough. It kind of compounds those questions you're already like, you know, fraught with. And it sends you further inward and away from the support that you need because you don't want to answer their questions because it, it's they, they're so hurtful. Yes. And also there are times I just didn't have the answer. And often the answer was nothing. I mean, that's the hard part. Nothing. You know, I called him as many times as I could. 
I had as many people looking for him as I could. Sure, there are certain things that I wonder if I had just changed this little thing, would the outcome have been different? And there's no way of knowing. And it's possible that there's absolutely nothing that I could have done to save him on that day. And I think that's exactly where it comes from is this idea of we can save them. And we take on that responsibility on ourselves that if someone ends their life, somehow now we're responsible because we didn't save them rather than seeing that that was a choice that they had. And as hurtful as that is, in a way, for me, I honor that I wish my husband was here, but he made that choice. And I want to honor that that's the choice he made. Not condone. I want to make sure it's really clear. I'm not condoning. (laughs) And people who don't, who have never lived through the pain of depression, of trauma, you know, of that sort of thing, I don't think that they understand. Stand, you know, we talk, we've talked a lot about depression on this podcast, but you know, a lot of times people are like, you know, just do this or just wake up and decide you're going to have a better day or whatever. So, a person who's never been in those depths of depression, of despair, they don't understand that people who commit suicide are they're in pain, they're in mental anguish, and to them it's a permanent solution to the pain that they're living in. They want the pain to stop. It's the way to to make the pain stop. Yeah, absolutely. My husband has been suicidal. He's been hospitalized for it. He has told me, you know, at that moment, you feel like that's the only option. Like he would say, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live this way anymore. And, you know, especially for people who aren't in a place where they feel like they can get help and that they can talk to somebody about that for whatever reason, or they have sought help and they're just not feeling better. I think people think, oh, I said something wrong, or if I would have said this, or if I would have done this, but it's really not about you. It's about them. And thank you so much for saying that, because I feel like that's where the shift comes in from switching from that anger and blame and judgment to being able to really start to have compassion for individuals. It's not easy to get to a point where you're contemplating ending your life. It's not easy to actually end your life. I know there are some thoughts out there that it is easy or that it's the easy way out or you're, it lacks courage. But I kind of look at it differently when you really break down the physical actions you have to take to end your life. And again, when you can really understand, maybe not understand, but when you can really start to think about the fact that someone is in that much emotional pain that the only thing they think is left is to die is pretty powerful. So you had to work through the grief process so that you could heal and that inspired you to write your book. Tell us a little bit about that. So initially after my husband, Sean, passed, I was told that I'd have some support through our local county to kind of guide me through things and then found very quickly that that support was not available. So I had to figure things out, even just the basic things of, you know, I call it the business. What kind of death certificates do you need? How do you, you know, handle an estate? There were some legal matters that were brought to my attention from other individuals involved in the situation where I was like, oh, I guess I need to go consult some lawyers. And and so I found that I just didn't have that. And that's really where I started going, okay, what can I use to help me kind of guide me on that journey? And I was gifted some really nice prayer books and a widow's journal. and But nothing really said like 
stuff can get really hard and you can get through it or here's some tips and tricks. I've always been someone who's like, give me some resources and let me see what works for me on what day. And so that's really how I started. I just started thinking, okay, if this is what's working for me, this is making me feel better. I mean, I was in shock for about four months and I didn't even realize that I was in shock until it lifted and went, okay, this is now the grief is setting in. Now it's like real time. Now I have to deal with the fact that, that my husband's not walking through that door. I just decided to see if there was some way that I could more the writing was actually to kind of guide myself (laughs) and say, okay, keep track of what I'm doing. And then it just turned into an idea that maybe I could help someone else. I can imagine number one, you know, you're dealing with the shock of the loss of your husband, but the world needs things from you. You know, like you said, you're dealing with insurance companies and, you know, payments and closing and this and fun. closing that. And meanwhile, exactly, you're a new mom. And I just can't even imagine how overwhelming that is without somebody there to guide you. I mean, I, I almost feel like, like you said, you said the county should have been available. I do feel like like there should be somebody there helping people navigate things like this. And I do know in some situations there are. And I have met people who have been supported at a better level than I was, but I will say, yes, it was complicated. And especially grief and shock, my capacity was pretty low. I I couldn't really tolerate doing much for very long in the day. I did have my son to take care of, but luckily did have support. And I have heard, you know, on and off in the last three years or so that some people say, you know, you just charge on kind of the same idea, pick yourself up by the bootstraps charge on. I'm a big believer of the village. Like it takes a village. I can't do this. There's no way that I can handle everything that needs to be handled on my own. And it took me a while to really understand and learn that. But once I started being able to find the right people to help me in a helpful way, because I say help isn't always helpful, (laughs) then I was able to really start leaning on that village to help me, to give me more capacity so I could figure out what I needed to do. I think that's important as well. You know, you started off by saying that it's okay to reflect on your hurts rather than shoving them down. And then the second part of of this is the idea that we should be able to do it all ourselves, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just do it yourself. We could frop the bacon. We could bring it home in a pan. Well, I said it backwards, but it was a commercial from the 70s. We can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. We can do it all. But instead, asking for help when you need it is what we should be doing. You know, don't shove it down and ask for help. Yeah, you have to go through it. I mean, I know people who've bypassed and tried to get around their grief and they're stuck. It ends up kind of, you end up stuck in the process. You can see physical ailments that arise if you don't release those emotions. When you're talking about people and even individuals who die by suicide are in that dark abyss and that despair, one of the best books that I've read to help me was The Body Keeps the Score. And that really opened my eyes to like, our bodies are holding on to this. So it impacts how we view and our perspective, how we view life and and how we make our choices. And so I'm absolutely a believer, like, yes, not only do you have to be able to ask for help, but to also reflect and figure out, oh, what am I holding on to that might be causing me more difficulty? I have a friend that cracks me up. She's like, oh, I know this and this is happening because my shoulders get really tight and I know what I have to emotionally release. That's so in tune. I would love to get to that point. Well, I think sometimes people think grief is sort of a passive thing that happens to you. 
And I have found that grief is really more an active process. Like you have to actively choose to grieve and, you know, what that looks like to different people is going to be different. Like the way I actively choose to grieve my brother who passed away in 2010 is probably different than a way another person is going to grieve their mother who passed away. But I like, I really believe it's almost like a, you have to consciously decide, like, I'm going to sit with my grief and then I'm going to work with through my grief. Because if you don't decide, then you're just going to keep sitting there marinating in it. Did you find that to be true? Oh, absolutely. And the tools I use change every day. And so I'm a big proponent of find what tools work for you when you're feeling good so that when life does happen to you, you already have some momentum or you're already cued in. Yeah, you're keyed into what helps you. And so some days it's meditation. Some days it was me screaming in my car at my steering wheel. Some days it was running, you know, it just changes, but to know what will help because it is a process. That's why I say you move through it rather than try and go around it. And I, I literally had two therapists very early on. We're like, we'll work with you. Um, Cause I have therapists in all different <laughs> modalities that they're like, we'll work with, with you, but you've got to grieve a little bit first. Like you got to start moving through it and it's painful. It's horrible. It's yucky. There are days you don't want to get out of bed. I also say, find something to anchor to in your daily life to be able to, to, even if you have a day that you're not getting out of bed, that you have something that you're attached to enough that you're going to get out of bed the next day and to keep putting one small toe in front of the other as you start to embrace the journey, because it can be so awful, but it's very possible to get through it. And it's still a process. Don't get me wrong. I'm not done. I'm not to the other side. It's still a process, but there is a way to get to the other side where the good days outnumber the bad days. Do you currently now work with people who are on their own grief journey? Is that correct? Is that what you're doing now? Yes. So I do have a day job and then I also do coaching for individuals who are either in the grief process or are looking to make a change in their life of whatever capacity and are looking for assistance to actually reflect on, as I said earlier, those hurts to heal and to be able to really kind of move forward. And this is, they can connect with you at your website, Forward to Joy. That's where the the title of this episode is going to come from. We're, we're moving forward to joy through these hard. Tell us why you came up with those words. I like the sound of that, forward to joy. So the initial part of that story is that I was going to a conference and needed a landing page for the speaking and for the book. And so at midnight one night, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to find a way to do this. And then it just kind of came to me and it worked. The website was available. That's like, sometimes oh. how we name things. <laughs> right. And it totally just fell together exactly as it was supposed to. And then it really is truly how I feel about things is that we can move forward to that point of actually experiencing joy again. I had one of the sheriff's officers who had to inform me of Sean's death. She had lost her husband to suicide eight months prior to me. And she knelt down in front of me and said, you can get through this. You're not going to believe it, but you can get through it. And of course, in my mind, I had some choice words for her. But it stuck with me. And then I realized, yes, you can move forward. You just, we don't move on. I don't say we move on because Sean's always going to be with us. It's moving forward and being able to really see those bits and pieces of life that really actually do bring us joy again. Do you think that some people, I'm going to use the word choose, 
but I don't really think it's, I don't know that they like knowingly choose it, but do you think some people sort of choose to stay stuck in their grief because they feel like maybe it's their duty to their loved one that has passed? Yes. And I've seen multiple reasons. One, again, grief is painful and it's almost, it, not to necessarily put words into other people's mouths, but sometimes it almost seems like they're punishing themselves for not being able to save their person or, and I don't think anyone is consciously actively saying that. I think that there's that idea of if I do move forward, I'm dishonoring my loved one. If I smile and laugh, I'm dishonoring them. If I wasn't there to save them, then how can I be happy? I need to stay like this is my penance to stay in this. It's like you don't deserve joy because your loved one is no longer here and you're shouldering a little bit of that blame feeling that, you know, even though it's not your fault, you still have it. It's, it's, you know, just because we feel something, we have to acknowledge that. But it's like, how can there be joy? But I love that. That's why I love the name Forward to Joy, because it's there. You just have to trust that it will be. Well, and I like what you said about honoring your husband's memory, because as you were talking about, and Jen, you were just now talking about people who feel like they need, you know, like they shouldn't go find joy because they would be doing a disservice to their loved one who has passed, right? But in my head, I'm kind of the flip side person. And I just, that's probably how I've gotten through difficulties in my life is like, yes, this is, you know, really awful and bad. But on the flip side, what can I do good from this? And so for me, like, I'm thinking while you're talking, okay, you know, if I was you, I would think, okay, my husband could not find his joy in his life and he was struggling and he was hurting and he was in pain. So I need to live a joyous life to honor him, you know, for him. Does that kind of thing cross your mind? Oh, yes, absolutely too. Because I find that I did the same thing. Like, how can I laugh or chuckle if my husband is passed? Am I not grieving enough? Like there were a lot of questions around my grieving process. And did you feel like you would be judged if you were laughing and having a good time? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was watched kind of like a hawk for a while. And I think that's just the nature of this. Are you crying enough? Are you not crying enough? And what does it all mean? Right? We're looking for, again, that purpose of, oh, if she's not crying enough, then did she really know that this was coming? Like, did she know and not stop him kind of thing? And I would say I got to a point where I started to reflect on how much anger I had towards other people. I didn't really have anger towards Sean, but I definitely had anger towards other people in the situation. And I stopped myself and thought, he is not carrying this right now. And again, that's like tapping into a little bit of my spiritual viewpoint in this whole situation. But if he's not mad at these people anymore, why am I? Like, that doesn't mean I've forgiven them. (laughs) But, But at least I can start to take steps towards that. And so I thought, why am I going to live? Like, I already have this lifelong journey of grief. Why would I stay there? Like, what am I showing my son by doing this? What am I showing my for my own life in this? Like, I just had to get to a point where I thought, you know, I think the sadness and the grief and the pain no longer exists for Sean anymore. So why would I hold on to that for him here? Instead of, as you're saying, be able to find the joy and make the most of what I have left of this life. Like what lessons do I still have to learn and can do so while also laughing a little bit along the way and and finding joy. And you used the word forgiveness earlier. Forgiveness is its own whole journey. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine that at some point you had to find forgiveness for your husband. Yes. And it actually started with finding some starting to forgive myself. And so being able to look at, you know, I was doing the exact examination, as I mentioned earlier, that others were doing of my life. What kind of wife was I? What kind of mother was I? What kind of marriage do we have? What could I have done differently? And I had to start having more compassion for myself to say, I couldn't do it all. I, I couldn't try and do it all and save him. I couldn't carry us both emotionally and try and take the pain. I was out willing to be a support to him and found that I really had to forgive myself and those moments where I was frustrated with him and we might've argued or, you know, things like that where my own, this is where I talk about healing those past hurts, you know, upon reflection, I can see how my own conditioning and my own patterns came up in our marriage as they will in any relationship and thinking, oh, if I had just, you know, maybe changed those differently or done this differently, maybe the stress would have been different. That doesn't mean the outcome would have been different. It doesn't mean it wouldn't have still ended with him dying. But those were the pieces that I had to sit with myself and forgive that. And then I was able to start looking at forgiving him too for getting to that point. You know, of course, you sat there, you looked back, you wondered if there was signs or there was something that you should have seen and, you know, that you didn't. But in hindsight, were there things that you saw that maybe you wish you had maybe taken note of where you could have tried to get him some help that maybe you didn't realize at the time that he needed some help? Or did you always know he was kind of struggling? I knew that he had struggles. I think the difference was not only to what extent was it impacting him, but to what, like how other stressors were contributing as well. So I don't think it was just related to his childhood trauma, like the way I view it. And of course, I don't really have the answers. This is just my speculation that I think it wasn't just his childhood trauma. I think that he just didn't have the best and healthiest coping skills. So he did what he could and what he knew. And then when other stressors added on and on and on, it just became too much. His coping skills weren't enough to cover everything. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, if you going back to how it impacts your body, if you feel that you're broken to your core, you know, and you would say, like, what's the point of me trying these other resources? He knew it was available. He's like, they're not going to work on me. So what's the point of trying them? Which actually was a question that I asked Russell Vanderkolk in a training he did. What do you do if someone knows all these awesome resources, but doesn't feel like they're going to help? And so it was an interesting discussion around that, Justin. You know, someone's in survival for so long, you have to find other creative ways to almost naturally pull them out of survival so that they can actually feel that they can access resources. They don't know there's another way other than survival because they've been stuck in that for so long. And so I can say for Sean, as I look back, I mean, just four days before he died, I had mentioned a therapist who does an alternative type of therapy. It's like EMDR, just a little different. And I said, you know, you don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. Will you go see this person? And he said, yes. And, you know, four days later he died. So I think there are reflection of like, oh, maybe I could have been a better support here, or maybe this was you know, a bigger issue to him than I realized. But as far as the support, I mean, we both talked about wanting to be as healthy as possible with each other. I just, 
for those other reasons, as I mentioned, I just don't think he could access them. He just didn't think it would do anything. Did that answer the question? I think you did. You kind of did. I, yeah. I think that okay. you did. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we all know family members who struggle with depression. And so that's the thing. You know, everyone who struggles with depression is, is not going to commit suicide. And so when we have a loved one who struggles with depression, we think, oh, I should have known it was worse than it is. But but they didn't show you that part of it, that you didn't know. They didn't have, you know, they didn't make the threats. They didn't say anything. So you couldn't have known the level that he was suffering just because he was going through depression. So I just want to put that out there for everyone who might have family members who are depressed because that is really, really common. And I would say... For Sean, I usually say he had depressive symptoms. He didn't have a diagnosis. Obviously, he had, as I've said, some trauma and some things he was working through or not working through at that time. But there, you know, I don't know if if we say like a functional person with depression, I don't know how you would say it. There wasn't anything going on in his life that would indicate that there was any sort of clinical level of that. Like he didn't get in the bed and couldn't get out. He was functional. He was living his life. Yeah, and definitely uh, dealing with a lot of stress and, yes, having those depressive moments of, you know, we're not going to get out of this or, you know, obviously to get to a point of being in that much emotional pain was how he ended up, you know, making that decision. Yeah, Jen and I talk a lot about, I keep kind of coming back to the same analogy as we're talking about, you know, people have a bucket, right, and it gets filled up. And if his bucket was so full of past trauma and hurt and pain, and then, you know, the pandemic happened and, you know, maybe work stuff was happening and maybe the marriage was, you know, not at its best point at that point. So, you know, his bucket was already sitting there hovering around full and then it just started overflowing. And I imagine that's when the pain got to the point where he just was like, he didn't know how to manage it anymore. And I mean, I just feel like that analogy works for so much in life is that we take on as much as we can take on. And then we get to a breaking point where we just can't take on anymore. I think that's a great analogy. And again, when when you don't have access those, you know, coping skills or those strategies to help you manage that bucket, that's where it can be so overwhelming and, and that pain can increase. So I found it really interesting as I was preparing to talk to you today, I just researched a few facts about suicide. And I found this to be really like kind of mind blowing. We hear about homicides every day on the news. Every day you hear multiple. I just read in 2017, there were twice as many suicides as there were homicides in the United States. See, that's a shocking statistic to me. Twice as many suicides as homicides. But we're not talking about suicide every day. And that feels like a problem to me because education is power. Knowledge is power. I mean, that's what I talked about earlier is that it's, you know, always been taboo. And I feel like it's gotten better, but clearly it's not that much better. I think we need to talk about all of it, all the things that are shameful and taboo. Um, you know, We have a, a someone that I know from way back in my history, way back in my schooling, early years, let's just say. They just had a young child that not young, a young adult child that died. And no detail. I mean, obviously, I don't want to pry, but it was it's either drugs or suicide, right, at that age, because the, no one said anything. Everyone's just talking about how sorry they are. But not being able to say and not being able to, I mean, we need, there are so many people whose 
family members are struggling with drug addiction or who have a family member who committed suicide and you feel so alone because you can't talk about it because of that shame. And that's the part I think we need to really open up and destigmatize all of this because that shame is not good to carry around. It's happening everywhere. You know, someone on on Chad's side of the family you know, there was a drug overdose, and but no one talked about it. And it's just, it's one of those things that just, you feel like, well, I can't talk about that. You know, if it's cancer, we can all talk about that. We'll bring you a casserole. But, you know, suicide, like, oop, nope, can't, drug, nope, can't do it. And that that's, we've got to start talking about it. Well, and another statistic I saw was that 50% of people in the world have somebody that has been close to them in their life that has passed away from suicide. of people have lived through this, but we're still not talking about it. I was trying to look up the other day what the specific statistic is because I do go to a specific suicide support group and they, if you have lost someone by suicide, then you're more likely to potentially take your own life. And it's happened a little bit, not for anyone I know directly in the group, but over the years, they have had that happen within the group. And it is, I mean, this is why I'm hoping to empower people really to start talking more and to like take the shame and judgment. Here's how I look at it. Everybody has a negative event that has happened to them. Everybody. I don't know anyone who hasn't had something that has not negatively impacted them, but for whatever reason, as we talked earlier, we're told to shove it down, not talk about it. You just keep going and look at how it's impacted as I said, impacts our bodies, impacts our our mental state, impacts even our nutrition and how we view the world. And if we could just have, there's so much power in being able to say what that struggle is and to release that energy. And I agree with both of you, being able to talk about it is needed. I think too, if something happens to you and you tell somebody and they either discount your experience or they blame you for your experience. I mean, let's talk about sexual assault, for instance, how many victims get blamed. That doesn't leave the person in a headspace where they think, I want to talk about this again. I want to share this again. Because the first time they did it, they did not get a loving response. And you blame yourself also. I mean, even though you should not. Of course, you're thinking, well, I shouldn't have been there. That's the first thing you think. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone back to his dorm room, right? Yeah, there's some information in regards from neuroresearch that talks about for children when a negative event happens or a perceived negative event happens, it hits your brain at two and a half times greater than it does a positive event. And then it attaches a negative core belief with it. So that's where a lot of that blame as kids comes like, oh, we must have done something to deserve whatever has happened. And I think those kinds of things just carry on into adulthood as well. And you're right. If it's not safe to share, there's so much courage that comes out of vulnerability. I think I just stole Brene Brown's. (laughs) It's good stuff, though. I know. But there is so much courage in being vulnerable, except we don't allow people to be vulnerable and to give that safe space. And instead of coming with open arms and saying, oh my gosh, that's horrible. I'm so sorry you went through that. How can I support you? Instead we do, oh, it's like our lens of, wait, how close would this happen to me? What does this mean for me? How am I going to stay safe? And it's just unfortunate that we can't, you know, I always visualize like linking arms and saying we can do this together because 
life is hard and very unpredictable. Well, and I think shame grows. So the longer it sits, you know, it's like a seed inside your brain. And the longer it sits there, the bigger it grows. I might have to write that down. (laughs) I (laughs) I write stuff down all the time that people say. I always say like to share is to heal because it's not just, it's not just your healing, right? But when you are courageous enough and you're able to share something that happened to you, I think what you learn is it's never just you. Somebody else out there is living through the exact same thing you lived through. And when you can be courageous and vulnerable and you can share and you can talk about your experience, it opens the door so other people can share and be vulnerable and be courageous and they can share. And I really think that's what like communication and empathy can I just feel like heal so much in people. And it helps you lose the blame, like the blaming yourself. You know, you cannot control what other people are doing. You can't control the choices your husband made, Alexandra. He made his own choices. You can't control, you know, when your son is an adult, he will make some choices. You're going to be like, why did you make that choice? But that's the hardest part of loving people in our lives is when they make choices and we take them on as if we made them and we didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And that compassion and love is, is so crucial. I mean, I love that we're talking about that because I just think it's so crucial. And when we can call it out and call ourselves out, there's so much power in that. It's hurtful. Of course, it's painful. Like, oh, I made a mistake. I didn't do, I shouldn't have done, or I could have done better. I, I, I don't like to use the shoulds, but say I could have reacted differently in that. There's so much power in that. And in fact, one of the things I learned early on was some individuals, especially in Sean's family, couldn't say for months, for months how he died and to hold that in and then to see almost like this relief and release that happened once they could actually say my loved one Sean died by suicide you know I said something about empathy and compassion but self-compassion comes in there you know too oh that's a good one I'm still learning that one (laughs) well self-compassion is perhaps the hardest of all because we hold ourselves to the highest standards I mean, I really do believe if somebody came to you and, you know, they told you their story about, you know, say their husband, the way you would talk to them is often so much more compassionate than the way you would talk to yourself about it. And that's a good exercise. I mean, as you're saying it, I'm thinking, oh, I should do that more because that is a really good exercise is to, you know, talk to yourself as though it was someone you were talking to someone else or they were talking to you. I wrote that down about 10 minutes ago is something that I was... (laughs) But it's true that, I mean, no matter what the situation is, if you could talk to yourself compassionately the same way you would talk to someone you truly love, your best friend, your sister, if you could talk to yourself like you would talk to them, how much would that help you as a person, you know, get through it, become full of blame for ourselves? (laughs) Your son is how old now? He's almost four. Almost four. And do you talk to him about, does he know how daddy died? Does he know anything about that? I mean, like, how open are you with him? I'm quite open, but I also let him kind of direct it. So we do have pictures up. We talk about his dad is in heaven. And he did recently finally ask me how he died. And so I was not expecting it. I thought I had a little bit more time, a little bit more time on that one. And I didn't. And so I had to navigate that. And I didn't use the word suicide, but I did say that his dad took his own life and that he was in pain. And my main thing also is to 
encourage and empower my son that, to not confuse the, oh, if I'm in pain, I'm going to die. You know, as little kids, they're very concrete, very linear. So I was trying to say, you come to me and tell me when you're in pain. You keep doing that. And daddy didn't know how to ask for help when he was in pain. To try and create, you know, a separation enough that my son can still feel like he can access help and and so it has been coming up a little bit more recently, but I just try and be encouraging. Well, kids are so curious and I think kids know, kids I feel like can read a room so much better than adults because like they don't have other things like skewing their perspective, right? They're just so raw and honest that they they see things that uh, adults don't see. And so I imagine like he knew his daddy died and I'm sure he knew there was a story behind it. Yeah. And see, he's getting to an age where kids are playing house and they play mommy and daddy. And I appreciate that the school where he goes, there are other families of kids in his classroom that look different. I appreciate that. And the school is willing to take cues from me on how to handle that because it's not just a nuclear family. I think that's nice that he's able to do that. And I, I know it's a long road in front of me because there are going to be lots more questions and lots more ways to try and support him. That made me think about, I was a teacher for 28 years. I taught elementary aged children. And you're going to really need to, as he gets older, equip him for how to, like when other kids have heard part of the story and then they, like when he starts getting up into, you know, fifth grade and middle school and all of that. He has to have the tools to, you know, because people can just say horrible things and the kids and the kids don't really even have enough to know. They don't know, but they might just be repeating something. So that's going to be a hard part of the journey. I'm just thinking about it as a teacher and a mom. And so he's got to know, he's got to know the details and he's got to be able to speak. And it's great that he has you to navigate him through it. Well, thank you. And my goal is to, just as I'm trying to empower others to talk about it, is to empower him to talk about it. And it will happen, oh, middle school. I mean, Sean and I, I used to joke with him and say, I can handle elementary school. You come in for middle and high school and I'll come back for college. And so now having to do all of it, I'm like, oh my gosh, we'll see how this goes. But to give him the words and vocabulary and also to say, you know, if someone is being inappropriate or mean, you know, find resources, like, you know, find your trusted adults or things like that. Luckily, we're not there yet. And he has teachers who are very supportive. But I think right now he's in this, okay, I see other kids' dads and I don't see my own. And okay, I know my dad's dead. What does that mean? And so, you know, I could see his little, the wheels turning in his brain of trying to figure it out and then me to be a support because it's not easy. It's not easy. No, I can't imagine that it would be. Now, we are almost out of time. Tell our listeners where they can connect with you and find you and about your book. And we'll have all this in the show notes. Well, fantastic. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Forward to Joy. And I also have my website, forwardtojoy.com. And then my email is also Alexandra at forwardtojoy.com. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that helps make it possible for us to bring you this podcast, and that is Beauty Counter. And I have found a new favorite product. Jen, I haven't told you about this. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Well, when I had a facial for the first time ever in April, the esthetician said my skin was really great except for one thing, and she advised me to exfoliate a few times a week. This led me to find the Reflect Effect Bamboo Buff Exfoliating Polish. It's formulated with just alumina and bamboo powder. And I had to look that up. 
how to say it. Yeah, I was like, I don't know what that is. I didn't know what it was either. It's basically a like a derivative of aluminum oxide or something. Okay. I could be but saying that wrong. But since it's beauty counter, we know it's safe. <laughs> it was in the middle of the night the other day when I looked it up, but it is a mineral. <laughs> and it's safe. This two-ingredient polish can be combined with most facial cleansers to help buff away dead skin cells, revealing soft, smooth, radiant, and even textured skin. You simply add more polish to the cleanser for extra exfoliation, creating a custom experience that meets your skin's needs. It just takes a small amount, and after using it one time, I could see such a difference. My skin looked and felt so smooth. Now, a few evenings a week, I just shake a little of the powder into whichever cleanser I'm using. I tend to rotate between the foaming cleanser and the lipid defense cleansing oil, and I just wash my face as usual, massaging the cleanser and the exfoliating polish into my skin. You just rinse it right off. Best of all, I know that Beauty Counter carefully selects their ingredients to avoid using anything that can harm my skin or my long-term health and delicate hormone balance. You can check this product out, as well as all of their wonderful makeup and skincare products, at beautycounter.com slash Sherry Bullock, S-H-E-R-I. B-U-L-L-O-C-K or lifelessonscommunity.com slash beauty counter. So now it's time for our listener-led lesson. It might be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from CB. Are you needing to take your pet to the vet because there's something not quite right with them? Take a video of the behavior or symptom you're concerned about, the cough, the limp, the breathing issue, etc., Animals may not display the same problems at the vet that they're displaying at home, but a video can help the vet make a diagnosis. The same technique works when taking your car to the shop as well. I actually did that with a car one time. I had a Volvo with a rattly dash, and it would get sometimes it would rattle like crazy. So I like videoed it while I was driving down the road and I took it into the shop and I'm like, listen. And the guy was like, oh my God, yes, okay. <laughs> I wish I had video on my phone back in the 90s when I had a car with a rattly dash. And it drove drove me me crazy. crazy. I traded that car in because I couldn't take it. They couldn't fix it. They took the dash off. They put it back on. It was so rattly, that video. And it it sounded way worse than the video even. I mean, it sounded bad in real life, but the video really showed it off. (laughs) I couldn't take it. (sighs) At the end of each show, we love to share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Apple. The quote is, when you replace, why is this happening to me with, what is this trying to teach me, everything shifts. This is such a small mental shift and a new habit to create, but it can really make a huge difference. I really love that. What is this trying to teach me? Because things happen. They just happen. Instead of thinking it's happening to you, it's more empowering to think, what am I learning from this? Right. Or, I mean, yeah, even like, okay, what led this to happen so that I can prevent this next time? Instead of traditional podcast ads, we develop sales and affiliate relationships with companies we love. When you shop with us, you'll not only have access to great products that we personally vetted, but you'll know that with every purchase, you're helping to support the podcast and make it possible. 